Welcome to Commodity Conversations. Join the Mercado team and guests while we go on a journey delving into the nitty-gritty of the agricultural industry. Before we start today's podcast, we want to just say a big thank you to the Close family at Currawera. Uh, these guys, uh, they gave us inspiration uh, for for the podcast or the idea of Mercado offering a podcast as part of our you know, outreach to the industry. They, uh, they came to us saying, well, why don't you guys do a podcast so I've got something to listen to in the car? Something easy and lightweight. So we said, well, yeah, why don't we give it a shot? So the guys at Currawera uh, are very innovative and they've got what you would consider the, uh, the Ferrari of the, the Merino and cattle industry. So if you guys are looking for any help, give the guys at Currawera a call. Welcome to the, uh, the first Commodity Conversations uh, with Mercado. Uh, I'm Andrew Whitelaw. And I'm Robert Herman. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a buzzword of the year. In, in 2018, Canberra Bubble was the, uh, was the word of the year by the Australian Dictionary. Uh, the Mercado, as important as we are, we've dictated our word of the year, and that is social license. And uh, you will not have been to a conference in the last year where social license hasn't been at the top of the agenda. So we thought it was an interesting point of view. We've been uh, following it quite closely. Uh, and as ever, we have got a contrarian point of view on the subject. I guess we can start by, um, what do you think social license is, Andrew? What's your definition of it? You give me yours and I'll give you mine. Uh, well, if we're going to put it on the table and what our, our views of social license are, uh, I think if you went to... Uh, to 10 people, you'd probably get 10 answers on what social license is. Uh, a number of those answers would probably have expletives in them. But I think social license is really, I guess, about doing what the consumer wants, or even not the consumer, it's, I guess, more broadly defined as stakeholders want. And I think it, it comes down to uh, almost changing practices to, to, to meet the demands of uh, of stakeholders and in some cases that can be quite difficult because people demanding changes to the agricultural industry are not necessarily knowledgeable about what the proper practices are and what best practice is dictated as. So it's, it sometimes removes the element of you know science and data away from that decision of what we should be doing which I think is quite a a dangerous precedent because I think as much as emotions are important sometimes or 99% of the time, science and data should be uh, of paramount importance. And, and, and yourself, Robert, what do you think? Well, I think you've, you've led into a really good point there. I was reading uh, something late last year where the correlation between activists or people who want to be active and, and push their opinion and their understanding of science was completely disconnected. So the more active you were, the less you relied on science. And, uh, and of course, in agriculture, we've, we totally rely on science. I mean, all our advancement has come from the application of better practice, new ideas, scientific discovery, research, uh, that, um, that distribution of knowledge that's improved agriculture. So on the one hand, um, we're looking at people who are going to be applying a social license or the social license to agriculture, but I guess being not as informed, and you mentioned that. Uh, the big question is um, how much influence are they going to have and how, how should we react? 
and I think that's what we're coming to terms with. I guess that does raise a good point, doesn't it? That when you think about this acceptance of science, that we have, we have science which dictates that you know we should be using glyphosate where it's required. We should be using no-till. Um, a whole host of other technology, GMs, should be used. Things that go hand in hand, don't they? I mean, if we're going to conserve the soil, then it stands to reason that less cultivation is better. And, and that's right, and that's what the science tells us is, is important. But on the other hand, we have people saying that we should accept the science of, of climate change. And, and you know, 90% of, of people accept that climate change is real. So we accept science in that, in that sort of uh, situation, but on the other situation, we're expected not to accept science and then accept emotions. There's another, another quick example of that is um, <coughs> the use of um, HGPs in cattle. Um, and the effect of a HGP, which can be synthetic or can be a naturally incur occurring hormone, is that you have more efficient beef production, therefore you have less you use less feed and less water, you have a lower carbon footprint, and, and that greater efficiencies allows beef to be reduced at a lower cost. Um, however, and, and there's no scientific evidence to show that HGPs are bad for us. However, we get told by uh, some pretty high profile people that uh, their beef is not going to contain HGPs. And by inference, that means that other beef that does contain HGPs is bad for you. So. Without science, you can still influence social license, I think. And I think that's, that's the thing. You know, we, we talk about HGPs. How many consumers buying their, their weekly shopping actually knew what a HGP is or even now know what a HGP is? They just see no HGPs. That must be good. It's a bit like the argument of uh, dihydrogen monoxide. And dihydrogen monoxide being uh, dangerous where it's water. Whereas it sounds scary, yeah, but it, but it's just water. Of course, it's not always clear as like that because there are other areas where free-range eggs is a good example, Andrew, where um, the consumer understands that eggs, that chicken in cages are in cages, and therefore the eggs that are coming out of caged eggs, caged chickens, aren't necessarily what they want. Um, there's a higher cost to producing those eggs. Those eggs from free-range um, runs are a higher cost. But um, now we're seeing on supermarket shelves that the customer doesn't get the choice even to choose the lower-cost egg against the higher-cost free-range egg. Yeah, but I think that's, that's important as well because, you know, again, it comes down to that sort of thing of when it comes to cage eggs, they fly off the shelf. People are buying them. In, in, in large numbers. Even though we're, we're told that people want free-range eggs, they're paying for caged eggs. Because I think there's, there's an element of, I guess, if you were to do a poll of somebody, they're not going to, they don't, they don't want to admit to buying caged eggs. But it's what's in the shopping trolley which is important. And I think that's an issue that, you know, we are facing across a number of agricultural industries that we have a very, very noisy minority um, who are able to use you know, new, new mediums out there like your Twitters and your uh, Facebooks to, to punctuate a message very quickly to people. And uh, it's very easy to do. You can uh, pull on the heartstrings, have a, you know, one horrible picture, 
and that's all people remember. We 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 live in the sort of a a fifteen second news cycle, so educating them the opposite way of our practices is is almost impossible. Of course, the free the free range egg has been driven pretty much by the supermarket, who who are now saying we're not going to put cage eggs on the shelf. So it takes away the choice, and when and we can then say, oh, consumers. Are, uh, voting with their feet and buying free-range eggs, but if there isn't a choice on the supermarket, then I guess that's a bit of a fraught discussion. Um, but look, there are other industries in agriculture that are under the pressure. I mean, the, the greatest pressure uh, for social licence right at this minute, I suppose, um, is live export. And, and I guess some of the other industries like chickens and, and pigs and that are probably saying, uh, thank goodness we've got live export here, and sheep for that matter. You know, the mulesing debate goes away when when live export comes to the fore, but they're really under the pump. And, um, and I guess they're having to explain why they do what they do. And we've been involved in that, as you know. We've, we've produced reports for the live export industry and for Western Australian farmers uh, defending or explaining the uh, the reasons that live export uh, happens, and it's and it is an economic discussion in that regard. I mean, the reason those markets exist is because they create added wealth to the Australian economy, and and certainly in the case of live sheep to the uh, Middle East and uh, and cattle to the to Asia, they create um, food source and 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 a way of adding value to those countries. But you know. You've probably got a few different ideas, Andrew, because there are other industries that um, we could be focusing the spotlight on if live export wasn't copying all the flack right now. Well, I think this is the issue with, uh, with social license in that who is the judge and who is the jury when it comes to social license? Because a lot of social license comes down to ethics. And, and we can't say that there is a consumer or there is the, a homogenous group people are all different and you know in this office we've got a mixture of different viewpoints on a number of different uh, topics and I think that's what a healthy society should have and this is where it comes to the risk of, of social license in that if we have if we pick any agricultural product you know I might be a pessimist but I could find something that is socially wrong to at least a proportion of society if you, you pick a pick a a commodity and I can find something wrong with it. Well, I think um, one that comes to mind straight away is um, is wool. I mean, we, it, on the one hand, we can argue that wool is it's certainly free range, uh, it's renewable, it's sustainable, um, it's uh, natural, um, and yet we have people saying that we shouldn't be um, running sheep, we shouldn't be managing sheep the way we do. So, so they're all good logical arguments backed by data and science, but that doesn't really matter. You know, we have bad footage of mulesing. We've got, you know, footage of shearing, whether it's doctored or otherwise. Uh, we've got incidents in the press of, of bad shearing practice. We've got the mulesing uh, argument. But you could find, you know, we're sitting here wearing uh, normal clothes, but in reality, you can find a social license issue with almost any form of clothing. You know, we cannot you shouldn't be wearing leather because it uses animals, so the vegans have a social license issue with that. Fur is certainly off the table, Andrew. <laughs> no, fur is off. We can't be wearing chinchilla coats, and it's even today it's too hot for a chinchilla coat in Ballarat. 
Uh, cotton, well, we can't use that because of the fish kill, apparently, to a number of sectors of society. And it also uses a lot of water. Well, it's using water that is in, uh, in and land which could be used for making food. Uh, so that leaves us with synthetics, I think, doesn't well, it? Well, synthetics, <laughs> well, a lot of the, um, uh, the vegan activists say that we should be using uh, polyurethane leather for, as an example. Well, these synthetics are all made using fossil fuels, which again are apparently they're pretty bad for the environment, as as, as we we get told. And we'll, you have micro microplastics in the ocean, killing uh, dolphins and ducks and whatever else. So what happens in that so, situation? So, well, we've got to wear some uh, dock leaves to cover. Our, uh, <laughs> no, well, well, I'll need a pretty big dock leaf. But um, I think what that shows us, though, is that. Um, as you said, you can find something wrong with everything. The question is, you know, as a society, we've evolved, and how we've evolved is by, you know, using science to um, to change the way we were. Um, it's it's all going to have pluses and minuses. It's all going to have for and against. And I guess, and I guess that's one of the the things that we see is that over time, social license is a twenty year old term. And it was really developed for the mining industry, and, and I think specifically the coal mining industry. And so they've adopted social license, but it's not exactly been successful tactic for them either. And, and this is where it comes down to is education. You know, what, what do you think, Robert? We've got this very large and growing city-country divide. You know, we, we talk about bridging that gap, or the industry talks about bridging the uh, the, the city metro, the city country divide, is that possible at this juncture? It's a really good question because the, that, that in itself has actually contributed to the problem. I mean, if we went back to my childhood, there were heaps of kids who would come out on our farm and uh, they would see dad slaughter a sheep. So they knew that that's where their meat came from. And they knew that the sheep had to be slaughtered to, uh, and it wasn't pretty, uh, it became a fact of life. They saw the cow getting milked, so they knew that a cow had to actually be brought in. It had to be, um, it had to have a calf, and that calf had to be taken away from the cow and reared separately so that we had milk. So people had an understanding that uh, there are consequences for the lifestyle we have, for the for the food that we eat. So, so, so do you think at the moment we, we a lot of activists at the moment are in that probably age group, uh, sixteen to thirty five. So the, I guess you could call them the social media generation. Do you think it's too late to educate that generation? Um, you know, with people being, as people get older, get into their 20s, they get time sensitivities become an issue. We've got a hell of a lot of distractions. So is it too late to really do a fundamental switch in the, in the understandings of, of that sector of society? Is it the next generation we need to look for? Well, the next generation might be even harder because they're, they're actually less engaged with everything. I mean, they're, they're more tied up with, um, you know, their, uh, their devices and, uh, and, and their day-to-day activities than ever before. Like, I guess the activists of today are the parents of tomorrow. Yeah, so, um, so I think, and I know we had this conversation earlier today, but I really think that perhaps the education is, is almost beyond us now, the education to change that practice. So, 
some so that but that doesn't mean that we will stop farming and it doesn't mean that activists will stop activity um, or being active so somewhere along the line there there will be a meeting point and I guess that meeting point will come about where everybody gets some level of satisfaction so if we forget about the activists because they're, they're probably not listening to this podcast anyway Andrew or no. well, not yet <laughs> well a few of them will be listening to it and they will accuse of us of being funded by Gina Reinhart again but. ah yeah well we I still haven't got Gina's bank account details but um, but if we look at it from a farming point of view what we will what we need to accept though is that it's not business as usual it's not like it was back in the old days you know we can't use chemicals willy-nilly we can't we, we have to um, sustain our our soils and our pastures and we have to look after our animals but when we say that and we're talking to um, the modern professional farmer the modern professional farmer says well yeah that's what we do um, we it makes sense not just for a, a, an animal welfare point of view but from a business point of view to look after our animals it makes sense not just to save the environment but from a, uh, a long-term sustainability of our farm that we look after our pastures and our soils. Um, and it makes sense that we are doing the right thing as often as we possibly can on, on one level because it's a business that we're running and, and every business has to do those things to have a long-term sustainable future. But the people who are farming are um, good corporate citizens anyway. And so they're not going to let their animals starve, etc. And I think that's, you know, when, when you look at it like that, you know, we have to continue doing, doing the right thing and following what would be called best practice. I guess the question is, what is best practice? And, and that's one of, like I raised this in, a, in an article I wrote probably two or three weeks ago, uh, the issue of incrementalism, in that you can never satisfy the demands of an activist and it's all very well saying, you know, we're doing the right thing. Um, and I guess we, we've seen with the live export of sheep issue, there's been many, many within our industry saying we should just, you know, in quotation marks, make live export the sacrificial lamb to social license. The reality is that is not going to be a case of, you know, wipe our hands of sheep live export or glyphosate or whatever they current social ill happens to be with agriculture. It will move on to something else because all that does is, is I guess, rally the troops of activists. So we have to be careful that, you know, we have to be not just fighting fires. We have to be, I guess, looking at what is the next issue going to be and looking for a way around that because we can't just sacrifice all of our industries because the next step will be there, and we, we see that with uh, back to the back to the eggs. You know, caged eggs are uh, are unacceptable. Barn eggs are once caged eggs are gone, barn eggs will be unacceptable. Then free range will be acceptable. The benchmark, yeah. And then the benchmark will change, and well, at some point, well, free range is not acceptable. We we've seen farms near here that were pasture bred egg farms getting attacked by vegan activists, causing the death of hundreds of chickens. Mm, mm. So it comes back to the stage of, well, who is the judge? You know, are, are, we, are we targeting the activists or targeting the, the, the person sitting at home who's just had their lamb chop and now watching Gogglebox, who by and far are, are the, 
you know, the voters in the country, it's not the activists. Then our customers, the reality is our customers are not in Australia for the most part. If we look at wool, our customers are in China. Yeah. They're not in Australia. And, and that's where it comes down to, you know, what are we actually targeting? And, and, and when does it stop? I think this, this question about how, do we, how does it go into the future, we could have a look at some other industries. I mean, one example of an industry that has managed to, um, I guess, become acceptable uh, is the airline industry. Now, if you look at um, carbon emissions, they're by far the biggest <coughs> emitter. If you look at the amount of bitumen and, and, uh, and concrete that they've got to have to operate, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that they could be challenged on. Um, but they've managed to actually um, manage their uh, image and, uh, and do things that, have, that people now say, well, that's acceptable, and I'm happy to fly anywhere in the world anytime and not think twice about it. Well, if we bring it back again to another industry that we don't see much in the way of activism against is coffee. You know, we all love... Well, hang on, hang on. Coffee, now you're really, you're really starting to cut to the heart here. Well, well Everybody we, has a coffee. We all like a cup of coffee in the morning, well, most of us do. Uh, and I'm sure most of these activists like a, you know, a soy latte or, or whatnot. But <laughs> coffee, coffee's made in some of the poorest countries in the world using extremely fertile ground, which could be used for making food products, corn, whatever it may be but they're making coffee, uh, a lot of times with very dubious employment practices. And of course, most of that coffee is grown for, for not, us, not those poor countries. Well, uh, it's grown for us. It's, it's then shipped to the UK or Australia, Canada, the US, a lot of food miles. It's then roasted and then it's made into our coffee, which coffee is, is a luxury. We don't actually need coffee to sustain ourselves. Yes. Some mornings we probably do need it to sustain ourselves, but the reality is that it's 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 not a necessary product. So that coffee, in my view, probably should have the worst social license out of all ag products. And yet, um, if you look at the branding of the coffee, the marketing, uh, you know, even the even the terms using fair trade, those that are bandied around, are those those industries. It's the point I was making before, Andrew. Those industries. Um, if you drill down and, and, and get stuck into them, there are areas that they could be challenged on, but they've managed to manage that issue. And nobody suggests that coffee needs a social licence. I mean, in fact, uh, coffee in some areas is considered the social licence, you know, depending on the coffee you drink. Well, I guess I, that is the thing. When, when we talk about social licence, are we really talking about brushing some stuff under the carpet and then placing on the mantle the good parts of the industry. Of course, one of the, one of the um, areas that agriculture struggles with is that we are a pretty easy target. Um, we react, you know, people react quickly. They, uh, you know, the, the, the common response quite often is, ah, uh, oh, they don't understand us. And, uh, and, and what's it all mean? You know, we're feeding the world. We don't have to take notice of this. And we dismiss it and we carry on. And I think that's, if you look at the industries that have successfully dealt with social licence, that's not the way they've gone about it. Yeah. And, I, and I think, and I think that's, that's right, that we, we don't necessarily have a united voice either in that we have a number of representative bodies who, let's, let's be face it, are probably under, underfunded, but they're also, their focus is on 
a dozen different industries, whether it's beekeeping, pigs, grains, dairy. And the thing is, they all have competing interests as well. For instance, with, with this drought, they're representing grain growers, but they're also representing pig producers. Pig producers want grain imported, grain producers don't. Sure. Yeah. So they've got a limited amount of funding to market and a huge number of focus pieces to, 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 to target their funding. But then you look at the likes of Animals Australia. Um, people won't like this part of the podcast, but they are a fantastic organization. They are amazing at what they do. And that might sound strange coming from me, but they do a fantastic job of marketing. They also do a fantastic job of raising funds. Exactly. Far, far more, they're, they're far high, more highly funded. I think one of, your article, one of your charts you put out, Andrew, showed how much funding they actually attract compared to, uh, to just direct against Australian farmers. Well, well, if you look at in the last 10 years, they've raised $44 million. Uh, and then in the last That's in Australia. In Australia. And last year they raised nine million and they spent, you know, four million plus targeted specifically against sheep live exports. You know uh, representative bodies, you know, would struggle to spend four million on anything on any one focus item. And I think that's where, where we have to look at in terms of, you know, they've got the money to throw around whereas our industry doesn't. It's interesting that um, when I was in the US, we, I, I visited a couple of piggeries. And in the US, they still have sow stalls. I mean, we've, we're certainly not having sow stalls in Australia anymore, and never, that they will never happen again. But when I asked them about, um, is there any activist pressure on them, um, they were dismissive of it. And, and their reasoning was that if anything starts to bubble up to the surface, we go to our politicians and we say, just knock this on the head, it's not going to happen. And so the activists don't go down the pathways of areas where they're not going to get any, uh, any success uh, at the political level. So, and the reason that they can do that is because the US farmers lobby is, is very, very strong. And it's very strong because it has a really high uh, membership level. You know, farmers are members of it. Whereas in Australia, to be honest, you know, the, there's not a really strong uptake of farmers who are members, and they're not a, there's not a strong uptake of farmers who are active members. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's definitely a key point. You've got a whole bunch of regional uh, representation bodies, which membership levels are incredibly low, and they've been dropping year on year. And, and like, it is a concern because then people from the outside are looking in saying, well, why aren't you doing something for us? Well, you're not a member, so why should we? And I think that's that's something where I think people say, but they don't represent my views. But this is where these type of groups, you know, they need, you know, a broad church of opinions. Because I think only with having that sort of multi-viewpoint, you can actually get something that will actually work. As opposed to having a whole bunch of people sitting around paying their, their fees and then having the same opinion. It's, it's just a talking shop. And I think... Over time, it's you know, a lot of the age groups of these um, these representation bodies are pretty old. So, ten years time, we're going to be running out of people as they, you know, to put it bluntly, as they die off. I think on a positive to that though <coughs> is that uh, certainly Fiona Simpson at the NFF has raised a profile as the leader, 
Um, but it does seem to me a lot of the time that her um, what she's saying and what she's doing is aimed at attracting farmers to be supporters of NFF. Whereas if you if that wasn't your focus, if you had all that support naturally and naturally supporting you, then your focus and your efforts could be on attacking the issues that they need to attack and 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 driving that value to the members. So um, with it, and we're not we're not. Um, uh, funded by the NFF or we're not uh, closely involved with the NFF but it just seems to me that if you do have a strong representative body and the NFF seems to be the logical one uh, then they are the ones that could be doing uh, taking up this this fight to a greater degree. And, and the same happens in the UK with the, the NFU, National Farmers Union, very strong body, most farmers are members of it so you know, they've got a lot of contributions from a lot of farmers, which allows them to a represent the opinions of farmers more closely, but also have a powerful lobby with which they can go to government. I think we've also seen an example. If you remember back to the live cattle um, when that was um, banned for a short period of time, I mean, what happened in that situation was it was obvious that the there wasn't a cohesive response to the uh, to the shocking footage. And, and it took time before uh, the, um, you know, the Feder- Farmers Federation and the cattle exporters all got their act together. Now, you don't have time to respond to these things in this day and age. You have to be ready and, and to roll out straight away because that's what the activists are. The activists are on their toes. Uh, they're ready and looking for things at, at any point in time. So we have to match that. And I think that's when it comes down to, you know, the activists are not doing one thing. They're, they're smarter than that and that they have the release of one thing then straight away the follow-up and straight up follow-up to that and then so what it's allowing them to do is stay in the media consciousness for longer and longer periods of time which you know is very hard for an underfunded organization to actually do that i mean to, to sort of wind but, up today but, Andrew, but then if you look at it sorry robert we've now got other organizations such as uh, green shirts which is, I guess, a grassroots movement, which is almost a parallel to an extent of the activists in that they are you know, self-run and they are you know, trying to do good by putting out you know, memes and uh, small, short snippets of information out there on, on social media. And they're able to react, you know, in some cases, a lot quicker and probably a little bit more bluntly than, than, than what a an organisation like NFF or WOF or PGA or VFF can actually do. So it's an interesting new development. That's only in the last, probably last year we've seen this green shirts movement. Mm. I think it started off in WA and, and going national, but not really, but being more grassroots levels. And maybe trying to fight fire with fire in the same in the same way that uh, the activists get out there with their message. I think that would be Look, case. one of the things, I mean, one of the things that sustains me when we see the attacks that come to agriculture is that we know that inherently farming in Australia is world's best practice. We know that animal welfare in Australia is world's best practice. If you want to, you know, you don't have to go far to find where things are uh, in a worse state in terms of animal welfare, in terms of sustainability of the land, in terms of our um, cropping practices. Uh, these are all worlds back. So I know that even when we get attacked, I have this underlying confidence that we're doing a good thing. That we're and look, we're efficient. You know, we're extraordinarily efficient. 
Uh, look at the size of farms now and how much grain is produced on farms, how much lamb is coming off. Look at the look at the slaughter rates we've seen this year in a drought. I mean, it's quite amazing what we can do. So I have that underlying confidence. Yeah, I've got the confidence as well. Uh, obviously, I am Scottish. I'm a bit more pessimistic. I'm glad you cleared that up because there'll be people here thinking they're listening to a Irishman or something, Andrew. To, to, but to, to, uh, we don't. That, that's a bit of a no-go zone. No, it's uh, the old shortbread turton. <laughs> uh, but when, uh, like, I think we do have a big challenge in the coming years, in that I think uh, our industry is, is going to struggle to react to the changing environment of communications, in that people are, or activists are able to get the message out. It was only, a, I said, fifteen seconds earlier on. It's probably a five seconds meme is all it takes to change people's opinions. And I think people are not going to take the time to say, they see a meme and they're not going to say, well, I'm going to have a research and actually see, is that the case? They're not going to do that. They're just going to see the meme. And then they're going to see, you know, a statement, a professionally reading, well-worded statement from an organization, which they're just going to say, oh, but they would say that, wouldn't they? And I think that's one of the issues with social license is that social license is almost the PR consultants who are really pushing this uh, social license. They will say it's a front-footed activity. I actually think it's a back-footed activity in that you're constantly moving backwards uh, to change practices to meet the demands of uh, stakeholders who, you know, have a political bent or a political viewpoint. Well, look, it's been great. It's been great talking about this. It's certainly a topic that um, that we want to have more to say on, but we're all so interested in what uh, other people got to think. And we're also keen for people to go to our website, um, www.mercado.com.au, and have a look at some of the information we've published. Um, Andrew, for a first go, I think we've done pretty well. Yep, I think uh, the only issue we have is that podcasts don't have subtitles, but... Uh yeah, we, 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 like, we like back and forth communication. So, you know, get onto Twitter, get onto LinkedIn, Facebook, let us know what you think. Uh, give us a phone. Tell us that we're talking a load of nonsense. We'd, we'd be more than happy to hear it. And, you know, if you think that our views are wrong, well, why don't you jump on and we can have a podcast together. We'd certainly be happy to talk to uh, others about different things. And we'll be doing that in the future. That's our intention now, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what we want to do, the purpose of this podcast is really to get, you know, just have a little chat, uh, see what's happening around the traps, uh, something to listen to when you're spraying weeds. Um, but we want to cover a wide range of different topics. You know, we're, we're all, one thing we're never afraid of is giving a view and at times giving a view that's not necessarily popular with uh, with the industry sort of uh, consensus. So if you've got any ideas for any topics you want us to cover, or you want to come on and have a chat, let us know. Terrific. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Robert.